Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 20th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, and with me in studio, in our offices, in New York City, for the first time in 14 months, sitting across from me in a closed office, fully vaccinated, we have executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Very excitedly, we gathered together to do the podcast in our old classic way. The three of us in this office and Christine Rosen on remote in Washington, D.C. We recorded an entire episode and uh, Christine's audio track did not function and we don't know why. And so we are having to do this a second time, having gotten all excited about going back to the old ways. But it's been 14 months, something changed, some setting changed, something happened to the program, something like that. We can't get Christine back in, so we're just gonna do it, the three of us. <laughs> but this is not the new normal. This is So we're not back in the new normal because we, although I have to say, I got to confess, the three of us are varying levels of technical incompetence, uh, all three of us. And I would say that some of us, including me, have a, maybe a certain ludicrous arrogance about our abilities in this regard um, that are always disproven by experience. And so uh, we, we are overly confident about our ability to improvise under certain circumstances. When we sat down to record this for the first time, and we were just the three of us in the office before Christine got on, we were having troubles with the sound. It didn't sound right. There was something not coming through the speakers uh, adequately. And Noah Rothman is the person who handles that. And there was a soundboard in front of him and things weren't working. And I said, hey, Noah, why don't you just press that red button there? And he was like, that's not going to make any difference. And I said, why don't you just press it? What what harm could it do to press it? And guess what? It made a difference. Yeah. Pressing the red button. I don't know what difference it made, and neither does he, and neither does A. Greenwald. The building across the street also crumbled when he, when he hit the button. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, yes, it's one of those things where the sound works, but a thousand people died on the other part of the... You know, on the other a thousand on the on the other part of the on the other part of the planet. The, anyway, you know what? This is actually a really pretty good metaphor for you know the post-pandemic experience. As we all got into the office for the first time in fourteen months, had this very organic, free-flowing conversation. We were you know, elated, jubilant, back to normal. Right? It wasn't normal. None of it actually worked, unbeknownst to us. It was kind of a mess, and it just reinforces that it's gonna it's gonna take a little longer than you thought it would take to get your sea legs back. Wow, that is good. You know, that is actually a very good improvisation based on our our, our last experience that we did something that was actually redeem myself after symbolic. The that is a synecdoche of the human experience of the pandemic right here on the Commentary Magazine podcast. That, of course, was Associate Editor Rothman uh, speaking, and here is Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And you know. Uh, well, some of us may have a sense of arrogance about these technical issues. Some of us have a great humility, <laughs> including myself. So my contribution to the to the earlier debacle was I crawled under the desk and, and put a plug in the wall 
and it felt like a, a, it worked. A, a, day, worked. a day's good work. Yeah, that worked. They were like, "Why isn't there anything? This doesn't seem to have any electricity going into it." And Abe said, "I'll check." And he crawled under the desk because I hurt my knee and I can't really crawl under the desk. So we have the three of us. Uh, it's the it's the story of the Jewish car. Jackie Mason's story of the Jewish car. In the Gentile car, the Gentile car stops. And the Gentile gets out of the car. And he opens the hood. He checks the oil. He char- recharges the battery. He checks the wiper fluid. He fixes the tires. He jacks up the tire. He, is, he cl- you know, checks the catalytic converter. He closes the hood. The car drives off. In a Jewish car, the Jewish car stops. And the driver says, it stopped. <laughs> and that's us. And our technical skills here at the Commentary Magazine uh, podcast. Our our redoubtable colleague, Stephanie Roberts, omnicompetent, a person who uh, can do anything, has grown so unnerved by having to deal with any (laughs) issue relating to this podcast that when I said to her a couple weeks ago that Noah, and she does her own, she has her own podcast, she does some podcasting. And I said, look, Noah's out, can you produce the podcast? She was like, I can't. I just can't. You can't. I'm sorry. I'll do anything else that you want me to do, but I can't do that. And this is this is why, because here we are. I know this is really thrilling to all of you, but I think it's important that you understand that we know our limitations. And when we don't know our limitations, we waste an hour and 10 minutes recording a podcast that you will never, ever hear. It's okay. not the first time. It's not, That's although I have before. to say it's only happened a couple of times, and this is what happens in broadcasting. Like, you know, I was just reading last week about how CBS, you know, uh, this, this crisis in the management leadership of CBS News, and they just installed Nora O'Donnell as the anchor of the CBS Evening News, and she had a key interview with Mark Zuckerberg slated. This was very important. They'd been promoting it for days, and like, I don't know why anybody would tune in more to watch Mark Zuckerberg, which is like watching paint dry, but... Fine, so he was going to be on. They promoted and everything like that. And then it was just in the early days of the pandemic. And then something went wrong. She was in Washington, uh, Nora O'Donnell, and the show's in New York. And there was a skeleton crew because of COVID. And uh, and basically they had some feed from a different CBS local news channel or something like that. And that was that was – so this can happen on a major national network just like it can happen here on a minor national podcast. <laughs> so, well, for a year, I mean, TV news interviews being conducted over various types of online communications have been pretty bad. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people talking over one another and not, and, and pauses and all that but stuff. But not just that, by the way. Biden yesterday gave this, you know, announced that everybody uh, could uh, now at, in, in the country had access to the vaccine. And they did it on this weird tinny. He was on, it was like, he was, it was like a, a video that uh, that a, that a good YouTube podcaster wouldn't have put up. Uh, the sound was bad. The lighting was weird. He's the president of the United States. Like, what the hell? Like, where is the minimal competence? Like, okay, it's been a year. Like, you should be able to do this right. They'd figured out at the end of Trump's term. You remember he was doing these kind of filmy things on the lawn, you know, where he would you know, make this little speech with his hair was blowing a little bit in the wind and... 
you know, in his suit and with the White House behind him and, you know, uh, sort of uh, he was in the foreground. They were sort of blurry in the background and it looked good. Like why this Biden thing? Yeah, it was sort of like a combination of a hostage video and a bad TikTok, you know, and sounded like a it sounded like a TikTok also, which has seemed unnecessary, even though it's good news that everybody over the age of 16 can now get the vaccine. Um Speaking of which, by the way, you know, I've been talking very uh, pessimistically and uh, uh, the Dispatch, our friends at the Dispatch did their morning newsletter and they point out that polling has been showing over the last two months a, a decrease in vaccine hesitancy, not an increase and that, uh, and that the vaccine hesitancy numbers are, are sort of in, are better than they were by five or six points. Uh, from a month ago, and so maybe this is going in the right direction, and that we're 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 maybe overly um, nervous about the refusal of people to get vaccinated and achieve uh, herd immunity. I I, I have no idea what. what oh, to I do. That. Um, yeah, that's that's bunk. Um, polling will mislead you more than it will give you a good indication of what's going on. First of all, we are only and we're only ever talking about a good quarter of the population that were really recalcitrant vaccine holdouts. We're still only talking about a quarter of the population. Sometimes the poll is like, oh, sometimes it's you know, 39% in the YouGov poll after the Johnson Johnson thing were skeptical. Oh, my gosh. And then some other times it's the poll is just down to 25%. But it's always roughly 25% as the floor, which is too high if we're talking about our genuine quarter of the population. And it corresponds to decreasing numbers of people showing up at these vaccination sites. The observed experience of people who are monitoring these vaccination sites at counties across the country, from urban to rural, from uh, primarily African-American to white evangelical, it's across the board, uh, did the, the demand is down. The, the population that desperately wanted to get the vaccine got the vaccine. Now it's a hard slog to get everybody else who either doesn't think they need it or has some sort of frustration with it. And so polling is just not helpful at this stage when we're talking about a very small percent of the population 120 130 million people at this point have at least one vaccination one vaccine what's the adult population in the country it's 260, like 260 255 million I so we have another 100 million you know, percent of them you know, that's a significant amount of the population but why would you pull all adults on an issue that doesn't affect all adults you know i was trying i was trying to be cheerful i was trying <laughs> i was trying to start on an upbeat note because here we are all in the office together and you just had to go to the crushing morosity right from the get-go i read this thing it was like a good piece of news i thought i could you know kind of start in a cheerful fashion, and this apparently is just not, it's not in the cards. Well, the number, it's not who we are. It's not who we are as a podcast. The, the, despite that, uh, the daily numbers haven't been terrible. Um, the daily vaccinations, we're still in the 2 million to 3 million more range. Than that. Oh, yeah, and, and, I don't, and I don't want to make too much more. I mean, the, the rate on average is declining slightly, but it's it's very early days, so there's no reason to say that that's going to continue forever, but it might. The problem is, is that we devote too much attention to it, because I just don't know how much it matters. Um, obviously, we want to get everybody inoculated, but we need to wrap our minds around a condition in which we don't get everybody inoculated, because we won't get everybody inoculated. So if we're adhering to this fantasy that we can put a shot in every single arm in this country, we're going to fail, and we're going to be miserable in that failure, and we're going to be locked up forever because we failed. But that's just an, that's just an unachievable goal, and we need to 
have something approximating a realistic goal that we can achieve in the next couple of months. Because you are going to see a, a profound drop off at a certain point once the eligible population that wants to get this thing gets it. And then you, uh, you can't force people to get it if they don't want to get it. So we're going to have to accept the fact that there are going to be holdouts and it's going to be a substantial pop percentage of the population. What we do about that is the question before us. Do we stop all life while we try to coax and coerce these people into getting the vaccine? Or do we create conditions that in create incentives for people who are socially responsible and did this sort of thing? I mean, the thing about that is, so uh, not stopping all life in the event, in the inevitability that um, a significant percentage of the population doesn't get the vaccine will require people like Anthony Fauci to be more forthcoming about how what how good shape you are in if you got the vaccine. I mean, you know, if, if we're going to pretend that that vaccine doesn't help you unless everyone gets it forever, then then we're in we're in big trouble. Well, look, I, I said yesterday on the podcast that um, uh, Israel has now sixty three percent of the population of Israel has now received at least one of the two shots, and that their caseload was down to twenty six per million. Um, so that's pretty close, and we so if we were to look at this and say, well, I guess we're Israel suggests that herd immunity can be achieved at around 60%. The question is whether we're going to take yes for an answer because right. can we reach 60%? Yeah, we can reach 60%. And remember, that's adult population. Like once, if, if, the, if the vaccines get approved for people under the age of 16, you know, for kids, and certainly we, we hear that, uh, that it is potentially imminent for those 12 to 15, then obviously those percentage numbers can increase as a measure of the entire population and that we can use, as we do now, we can leverage the muscle that the country has over kids, particularly uh, school, school children, and whether they get to go back to school and all of that through vaccination um, you know, by the fall. But uh, the fall's a long way away. Uh, but I obviously. mean, like I wrote about this yesterday. So Michigan is one of these states that's moving to make these uh, COVID restrictions permanent. Um, and they're myriad and pretty onerous on, on businesses. And they established, I mean, places like Oregon won't even say the threshold at which point this isn't necessary anymore, but Michigan did, and it was roughly 70% of the population, which is, and this is only available to adults. So how many adults, How many, what percentage of the Michigan's population are adults? 73%. You're literally talking about universal adult vaccination. And if that's your goal... You are going right. to fail. It's right. not going to work. You are going to never reach universal vaccination among the adult population. So if you establish that as the, the threshold at which point you achieve uh, herd immunity, you can go back to normal. You're, you're essentially saying we will never go back to normal. I do think that we are back to this question of what are the incentives aside from people wanting to get back to ordinary life, which should be enough of an incentive, but clearly isn't. What are the incentives for politicians and public health officials to become, shall we say, more liberal about these numbers uh, and, and, to, and to move in, in that direction? And that's where there has been no change. I think. I mean, it is still the case that they that they they believe that they are serving the public interest best by being the most cautious, the most prudent, the most um, careful in their rhetoric, and the most determined to say that no matter what happens, 
uh, all of the protocols that were put in place uh, 14 months ago when we stopped podcasting in this office together uh, should remain in place, meaning, you know, social distancing, wearing masks, washing your hands frequently, cleaning surfaces, even though we know washing your hands frequently doesn't do anything except prevent general disease and surfaces, COVID doesn't attach to surfaces and they're still telling you you need to wash surfaces. Why? Because it's good to wash surfaces. Again, this is where we start getting this weird thing where we're getting public health uh, advice uh, that is has nothing to do with COVID, but is like, we want to make sure that everybody starts washing their hands more. So we're going to add that to the panoply oh, of fine. things you're supposed to do. It isn't really fine, but okay. To wash your hands is fine. No, it is fine. It just doesn't prevent COVID. Right. No, it has nothing to do with COVID. Um, but yeah, that's the public health bureaucracy, which prior to prioritizes health over every other aspect of well, life. Well, not health or their own understanding of what they're supposed to be preaching to people. It, the public health bureaucracy is focused entirely now on this this subset of the population that is recalcitrant, almost probably unreachable by them in whatever venues they're using to try to, to get to them. And they do have to create incentives now for people who did get vaccinated to justify vaccination for the people who won't get vaccinated. Now, I've talked about this at length. I'm very skeptical of the prospect of a, of a, a government-mandated vaccination passport that will open doors for you and where others will remain closed. Part of the reason why I am is because it's entirely redundant. You already get your little vaccination card when you get vaccinated. The CDC gives it out to you for free. That is your proof of purchase. And there's nothing stopping, once we create some sort of a consensus around this, there's nothing stopping private enterprises from requesting that they see something like that from you to remain maskless. Well, in the end, it's only private enterprises that are going to make a difference here anyway, because what, what you're, what's going to happen is... But the, the mask, what I'm trying to get yeah. at is the masking yeah. and a liberation from masking, which is entirely unnecessary... If you are fully vaccinated, I hate to say it, I'm sorry, public health bureaucracy, it's not. That's the ticket out because nobody is going to want to wear a mask if it's the stigma of you being one of these holdout. It's the, the, the visible stigma of you being a holdout for this vaccination. Well, look, Abe, how do we get out of, how do we, how do we move beyond the masking regime? You are no longer wearing a mask outside. Yeah. As I as I as I said on our previous <laughs> podcast that you won't hear, um, I do in part out of solidarity with my kids who are all in school and they all have to wear masks and two of them have to double mask and it's sort of like well if they're going to be walking around I guess I should walk around the same way, um, uh, and also because I live in a I live in a, a hyper sensitive neighborhood and I just don't need the crap from people if I weren't wearing a mask but you but you're not wearing a mask yeah and look I think. There's one hopeful sign, very small, and it's still early days here. But um, when I, I've, I've not been wearing a mask outdoors in all neighborhoods in New York City now for a couple of weeks at least, um, and I haven't, I haven't gotten um, any trouble from anyone. No one's given me a dirty look. No one's walked away from me. No one has uh, policed me. Um, so I think that is um, a very small step in the positive, positive direction, and I think. As the, the the summer gets here and the city's hot and people especially don't want to wear masks in the summer, and um, as more people get vaccinated, they're going to take the mask off. I, 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 slowly, there will always be holdouts. <clears throat> I think there will be people for the rest of our lives 
um, who who will be walking around in masks because of this. But I uh, I, I have to say I thought it was worse uh, as a glasses wearing person. I thought the winter was worse than the summer uh, because uh, because of the fogging problem. That was almost un, unanswerable. I just think that you'll know that masking is over when Fauci says masking is over. Unfortunately, I don't want to give him that power, but uh, but 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 he's now the fact that there a single person is going to be the determinant of this. I think that's the determinant. When he says you don't have to wear your mask anymore, there will be that will be when the consensus has been reached. But that and, yeah, that's going to be a huge zigzag for him because it it, it goes yeah. directly uh, in opposition to his claim about the efficacy of vaccines. And it's still a little early for for any of that. Uh, we, we're still vaccinating the unvaccinated who who really want to get a, an appointment and get fully vaccinated. And we're so we're David Leonard's. You know, we should show solidarity with the unvaccinated is really annoying. But to to the extent that it's no fault of their own, and that is true still, then it's a a justifiable claim to make, but it won't be in a month and a half, two months. Oh, I I think much, much sooner than that. I mean, we are, uh, I think all the, all the, all the evidence is that the lines are over. I mean, and now that, you know, now that the pharmacies all have um, vaccines available and all of that, there are, I don't know how many thousands of sites across the country that people can actually get, get the vaccine um you know that's a part of the thing about the 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 demand wall or the demand curve or whatever you want to call it is there is this idea that uh there's vaccines sitting in 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 freezers uh that uh, aren't being used because they've been shipped to places where people are simply not going out to get them um uh, particularly in rural areas and, and and places like that and i think also you'll see that in New York and other, you know, very uh, densely populated metropolitan areas with minority populations that are vaccine hesitant. All, all we've heard for months is that we need to privilege them uh, in the getting of vaccines because basically, uh, you know, uh, more well-to-do people will always find a way and we need to make sure that they can get it and they're, they're more their communism and harder hit and all of that. And so all of that was done and now it's done. And so the question is, who is it in these places who is not getting vaccinated? And I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's rural people who, and Trump voters and stuff like that, who, uh, who don't think that either COVID is real or they're whatever, they don't like it. And then, no, there's that. I mean, no, but then a lot of minority, there's a lot of minority populations that do not want to get the vaccine. But if you live in a particularly rural area where density is not an issue for you, you don't feel a sense of urgency about this sort of thing. And that's a rational assessment of risk. You know, it's a rational assessment of risk, but it's still a little mashuga. I'm sorry. And I use the word mashuga because, of <laughs> course, I'm an it, urban yes. person. It's like they're also hearing every piece of news in, in, in the world over the, last, over the last 14 months. And here's how you brand those people anathema you strap a mask on them when they're in public because they can't demonstrate that they're vaccinated right well i said i said this yesterday that but we the other thing we what we're doing to now is that the people who are fight. vaccinated are masking yeah and the people who aren't aren't right that makes no sense <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense and you know i i don't know are we monomaniacal in the way we're talking about this or i, I don't know i i still think that like this is the main 
topic of conversation among people I know. I'm a little worried that you know we're just saying the same things over and over again. But I I, I can't tell what really what really hits people and what doesn't hit people. Um, I'm just struck by the fact that um, you know two months ago there was this whole. Uh, you know, deep and desperate concern about making sure that there was equity in the distribution of the vaccine. And you are not hearing that word used much anymore because there's now more vaccine than there are users of the vaccine. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think we're monomaniacal. I think I'm a chronic eavesdropper. And uh, so everywhere I go, literally on the sidewalk or if I'm in a restaurant— I hear people discussing masks and masking. It is, it is yeah. you know, in the way that in 2016, every conversation that you would chance to catch a snippet of would be about Hillary and Trump. It yeah. is, it is masks. Well, I will say that the that the departure of Trump from the scene over the last four months has, I think, made this even more, even more of a monomaniacal subject for a lot of people because so many of the conversations in the previous four years were centered around Trump, and then he kind of withdrew as a subject. And Biden clearly isn't there filling the gap. Uh, if you live in New York for a couple of weeks, Cuomo is filling the gap, certainly. But, I mean, what is the common experience everybody is having? It's sort of like, how are you doing? How are you surviving? There was that very interesting piece in the New York Times yesterday about languishing by, by Adam Grant, the uh, sort of industrial psychologist at Wharton, about this idea that there is a condition that people are living in that is not depression and it's not, you know, it's not sort of clinical it is this feeling of joylessness or sort of like trudging through life that um, that I think captured much more much more clearly for me than anything else the experience of the last four months, let's say that um, that uh, with news that the with news that the vaccine was coming if you were if you were somebody who really really hated the Trump administration, the news that Biden was coming and that Trump was going or something like that. These things, uh, these things and uh, various other things should have been a, a, a salve uh, and a boost to the public mood. And it turned out that they weren't, right? They really, they really weren't. And I think the reason that they really weren't is because we 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 want there to be an end. we want there to be a declaration of an end right it's like we won you know it's over and it turns out that you know vaccinating 300 million people is a is a real challenge and and uh we'll never get there as noah says um and that if that's your goal then you're talking about you know no one's ever done something like this with this kind of speed and this kind of time at those those kind of numbers and so we're all just sort of like we're now in this kind of um, limbo. It's like we're, you know, we're like 62% of the way there or something. But, you know, it's like when you're downloading a piece of software or something or an update to your thing. And then it, it like it, it, it stalls out <laughs> as the bar is going across and it's going to fill. And then it gets really, really, really slow. But then what happens? Then it speeds up. Eventually, right? Then, like, either it, it speeds up or it crashes. Okay, yeah. yeah, that's the that's, well, that's the thing. That's so the yeah. I, I think I think we're at the sort of um, speeding up tipping point because if you look at the way uh, the daily infections and deaths dropped in Israel as they were as they were vaccinating everyone, um, there was a kind of languishing as well, and then um, cases yeah. just just went. That's off the why cliff. it's not about policy; it's paradigmatic. We just all have to 
reached a sort of general consensus that we've done what we can do with the resources available to us and the population that's amenable to being part of this experiment and move on. But if leaders, if the leaders of this country in a sort of semi-bipartisan fashion, I don't mean bipartisan because they'll, they'll stand together on a stage or something like that. I mean, if Ron DeSantis and Anthony Fauci are fundamentally on the same page about where we are, that's when we will be out of this. I mean, I, you know, let's put it that way. I'm not saying, you know, uh, uh, Bear, Alex Berenson and Fauci. I'm saying, you know, a, a, polit- a prudent politician who did not buy into the lockdown uh, approach and, a, and an overly cautious uh, public health person who says, all right, you know, we've done as much as we, we, we've gotten there or we're as close as we're going to get. And so it's time to go. That's when... That's when we'll, we'll know we're there. And then we can lie under our own vine and our, under our own fig tree. And if you want a fig tree, maybe you can get one from Fast Growing Trees, one of today's sponsors, uh, because, you know, this is, this is how, uh, how we can uh, rest and enjoy the summer and the warmer months with beautiful new uh, trees, plants, shrubs for uh, added color to our yard. Uh, shade, privacy, fruit trees, every plant is shipped from fast-growing trees with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth. No more waiting on lines at big box stores, messy cars while you bring things home, and digging through their lackluster selection. At fastgrowingtrees.com, you can choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. Uh, there's a better way to buy trees. This is the better way to buy trees. And planting season is here. So join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com with its 30-day live and thrive guarantee, which means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. And now through June 30th, go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 15% off. That's 15% off fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Um, so... Uh, Yesterday, we talked about Maxine Waters, the congressman from California, chairman of the uh, Financial Services Committee in the House of Representatives, effectively calling for violence should the verdict in the Derek Chauvin murder trial uh, relating to uh, George Floyd in, in Minneapolis should go the way that she doesn't want it to go. And a pretty startling thing happened in the courtroom. Uh, uh, Judge Peter Cahill admonished uh, in response to uh, defense lawyer Eric Nelson calling for a mistrial, said uh, that wasn't a ridiculous idea because uh, for all he knew, uh, he had a case. He had grounds to think that uh, should the verdict be be guilty, uh, that because of what Maxine Waters said, the verdict could be overturned on appeal. Um, I don't know that I've ever heard a judge say such a thing in not calling for a mistrial, it's one thing to call for a mistrial and say, look, I got to call a mistrial because the, my, this whatever the jury says is going to overturn this on appeal. He said, I'm not going to call a mistrial, but you may have got a point here. So maybe these people ought, ought, to, ought to shut up. And then 10 minutes later, the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry, said, uh, whatever the jury says, we all know that the police were, I'm now trying to remember the specific wording, um, Killed at the hands of he police. Was the, yeah, that George Floyd was killed at the hands of police. The mayor, elected mayor of Minneapolis, following the elected 
congressman who runs the House Financial Services Committee. We have two Democratic politicians uh, openly, um, you know, uh, saying things. Now, Waters, the jury wasn't sequestered when Waters spoke, and it was sequestered when Fry spoke. But well, we have a um, late entry. Oh, in, we do in this oh, good. sort of situation. Oh, great! That's really I'm really happy to hear that. With somewhat less inflammatory, but nevertheless completely inappropriate statement from the president of the United States, who said that he is hoping that the jury reaches quote the right verdict, quote, and that the evidence is quote overwhelming, quote, whatever he believes that to be. But we can understand what he's trying to say here. You know, I'm, I'm reminded, I just remembered, um, when Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was, it was determined that he would be tried in uh, uh, New York City as opposed to, I guess, uh, Gitmo. And uh, Obama got a lot of flack for this. And Obama said, well, don't worry, I'm sure he'll be convicted. Um, and and that, was a, that was a similar um, flap. I because mean, it's completely inappropriate yes, yes. for anyone to weigh in on a jury's del- active deliberations in a criminal a murder case. Look, this is why we have the jury system and why the jury system has existed for eight centuries. Because the idea is you assemble 12 people, jury of peers, who listen to every piece of evidence and consider the case with the knowledge in their hands that they hold the life of the person who is being tried in their hands, and that there are certain rules that they need to follow. The per, per, particularly that the prosecution has to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Right? The prosecu- the defense doesn't have to prove that the that the uh, accused is innocent. Has to prove that reasonable doubt as a standard means that the jury should not convict someone of the crime for which they are for which that person is accused. This system has worked for eight centuries at preventing precisely the sort of things that are happening right, right more, this More second. to the point, what is the purpose of sequestration? Right, is to prevent the staining of the jury pool and the contamination of the jury pool. Nelson called for the sequestration of the jury before the case, and Judge Cahill did not sequester the jury until time for the verdict, if time to consider the verdict. Maxine Waters. So, will that, they, so, what so Maxine that somebody Waters, doesn't strong arm them. So, right. So that, you know, pity if something happened to your family if you reach the wrong verdict. Yeah. Which just happens now to be coming from the president of the United States. Well, well, what the judge said was that, that it could be construed that Maxine Waters' words were a threat to the jury. I mean, it's just beyond belief. I mean, the reason that it's like this is precisely even to protect politicians from the necessity <laughs> of sucking up to their followers in controversial cases. To say, we have a system, and the system, we need to let the system work. He was he was uh, indicted on these charges. The charges are X. A jury is hearing them. There is a process that we go through that has been refined over centuries of time. Criminal procedure rules, all of that. A judge ruling on every you know piece of evidence with all these sidebars about what's going on and all of that, and then you have, I mean, it's really amazing that Biden would do that. Why did he do that? Why did he? Do the, first of all, a courtroom is an in, is 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 supposed to be independent of this. Granted, look, we've all seen cases where we've seen verdicts that horrify. Horrify us okay, when, when they don't. I have an yes. addition to the to the Biden quote, which makes it somehow even worse. 
even though, because he's completely aware of what he's doing. After he said, they're calling for peace and tranquility no matter what the verdict is. I'm praying that the verdict is the right verdict, which I think is overwhelming. He later says, I wouldn't say that unless the jury was sequestered. So he's saying, look, I know what I'm doing is completely irresponsible. But all the people who matter aren't going to hear it. This is just for, for you know, domestic Yeah, this domestic is just, this is just to create the conditions <laughs> under which the rioters, if the jury finds uh, Chauvin not guilty, the rioters will know that I'm basically on their side. Yeah. Is, that, is, that, is that the purpose of this? I mean, how have we how have we gotten to this point? I, I mean, I don't want to sound like naive or stupid or anything, but really, this is a way to protect politicians from their worst impulses or for the or for the demands of this. And this is one of the evils of social media. I'm sorry, like you, you, we exist in a world in which in which people. Uh, are convicted uh, and you know and and it's all over with because these consensus consensus consensi whatever it is are reached uh, by by a mob that organizes itself on Twitter um, and you know it's a it, it this is effectively it's not a lynch mob exactly because it can't go out and you know hang Derek Chauvin but can it scare the bejesus out of the out of the jury or members of the jury's family or stuff like that. Um, it's, it's also one of the perils of revolutionary rhetoric and, and wild activism. Um, if you wanted to see Derek Chauvin convicted and uh, without a significant chance of appeal, then you don't go and, and, and you know, try to blow up the system by, by talking about being confrontational. Um, just as similarly, just as you know, uh, Trump's claims about uh, f- fraud blew the elect, blew Georgia for for the Republicans. I mean, there's a, you know, you ha- you have to sort of take stock of, of reality at a certain point if you don't want to harm yourself and your own side with your antics. I mean, I, I just, I, 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 it's very, it's very dispiriting, and we have this other uh, piece of dispiriting news, which is, uh, which is, of course, the the news that came out yesterday that uh, Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, uh, who died the day after the the riot on on January sixth, did not die as a result of the riot, apparently, but of natural causes caused by two strokes, um, and that the uh, blood clots in question that led to the uh, to to the severity of the strokes were not caught. That the, the there was no tearing of something or other that would have let would have told you that that this happened as a result of the extreme stress of the moment uh, or was somehow um, caused by injuries. And what what we had been told in the immediate aftermath of, of of the riot was that he had been hit in the head with a fire extinguisher, that he had been trampled, that he had been, that all this stuff had happened. What did happen was that he was he was sprayed in the face with a bear repellent uh, by these by these two guys, which itself is is disgusting enough. Um, but that was another case in which social media not only rushed to judgment but reported, and then the media. We're talking about social media dominated by mainstream media reporters in this case, simply repeated unfounded allegations of systematic violence perpetrated against Sicknick that were that were untrue. Um, 
and and that's a very disheartening fact because it really does mean yet again that we now have more evidence and more information more more indications that social media is, is a promulgator of falsehoods uh, that uh, that that enter into the public discourse almost instantaneously and are almost impossible to remove from the public discourse, even as and this is why you know when when you couldn't report everything the second that it happened and have ten thousand people echo it and manifest it, you know uh, stories would develop over the course of a day and facts would come out and the final story that you would read in the paper the next day would be more accurate than than the than the kind of game of telephone that is represented by, by social media reporting. Um, so Noah, let me, let, me, let me ask you this. How, how is this going to affect, or uh, Abe and Noah, how is this going to affect the way in which people talk about the riot of January 6th? Well, I mean, you had said in, in the earlier podcast that you'll never get to hear um, that you noticed People who are inclined to uh, make excuses for the behavior that we saw on, on January 6th sort of takes some, some measure of vindication in this uh, announcement because it detracts from the, the body count that this event produced, um, which to me is very bizarre because I don't know why anybody on the right, or, or anybody for that matter whatsoever, would tacitly take ownership of these events and the people who perpetrated them by rushing to embrace this as exculpatory, as though it's exculpatory of them, as though it's exculpatory of their movement. First of all, again, why would you dare associate yourself with something this criminal, this negligent, this abhorrent? And second, it's not as though this, you know, it, it, it's nice to know that he wasn't murdered uh, where he stood by these rioters, but it's not for lack of effort on their part. All you have to do is survey the, the hours of video footage, all of which are available to you in, in granular detail to see the way in which law enforcement officers were bludgeoned mercilessly, were trapped in, in revolving doors, and attempted people were attempting to crush them. And you can witness the horrified screams of somebody who perceives himself to be in mortal danger. Um, they're fortunate that they didn't have a higher body count, but it's not as though this was a, a damage-free event, not, ju not just from a philosophical perspective, the, the, the assault on the foundations of the Republic it represented, but the actual people who were very badly hurt as a result of these events. Abe, 140 law enforcement officers were injured on January 6th. 140 sustained injuries on January 6th. This was a violent riot. It was nothing but a violent riot, and this retconning of the event is pretty startling. And as you said, uh, in, also in the previous abandoned podcast, <laughs> boy, I was um, so are, good on that podcast. But there, not like this one. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are people who would be alive today were it not for that day. Um, yeah. So there is a body count here. There were five, five people were five people died in the immediate during or in the immediate aftermath. One of them was shot by 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 officers Ashley Bennett. One of them was Brian Sicknick. But there were three others, and at least in those three cases, certainly a fourth case if you can Ashley Bennett, they would be alive today had it not been for had it not been for the event. Sicknick may be the only case in which that was not true. We just don't don't know. But it may have been it may, there may have been a tiny piece of what happened on January 6th that that had a triggering effect. It seems hard to believe that given the trauma that 
everybody involved experienced, particularly law enforcement who were in the middle of that sort of thing, that it had absolutely no bearing on events whatsoever. Not wanting to uh, comment on the on the medical examiner's report, that's certainly not my remit uh, or my expertise. But it's just it's it's just hard to fathom, and especially since you have the same people on the right who are saying, "Yeah, no, nobody died on January 6. It wasn't a big deal." Also, the environmental conditions that were that uh, Derek Chauvin imposed, for example, um, were were not a factor. Were completely not relevant. I, no, I mean, you know, for for people on the right to to say, "Well, the, the, because Brian Sicknick died of natural causes." Now this this whole thing is, is has been framed as a, as a much bigger deal than it really was. These are the same people um, who said, like we said, while while rioters were attacking federal buildings in Portland, Oregon, not not killing people there, but you know, uh, uh, blinding some officers with lasers, throwing Molotov cocktails, setting fires. This is a horror show that needs to be cracked down, that taken very seriously, and be and be cracked cracked down on by the federal government. And what were the people who were defending those actions saying? It's just property. That's right. It's just a building. That's right. Um, I mean, uh, it's just it's it, you know it's it's more more disheartening stuff about how we just can't have an honest conversation. You know, you can think you can even think that the election was stolen, uh, and think that what happened on January sixth was a was a, was an absolute uh, catastrophic horror. Uh, that the Capitol building should not be breached. By a, a mob that smashes things and goes in and 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 wanders around looking for senators and congressmen to do whatever they might want to do with as they are wandering through the corridors, calling to them. Right. We saw this on video. We've heard it. We caught. We've heard it and we've seen it. And this notion that you are now doing this gaslighting thing, where you're saying, "Don't believe what you saw." Look, the most powerful thing that the prosecutor said yesterday in the closing arguments was to the jury, "Believe your own eyes. What you saw. If what you saw, you know, passes the reasonable standard test for you, uh, you know, use your eyes." Well, okay. So maybe the defense uh, introduced enough reasonable doubt on the question of whether or not. The car exhausted this, or or his enlarged heart did that, or the fentanyl in his system did the other thing. Uh, that's going to be that's the that's the hurdle to overcome. We don't have any such hurdle in the case of what happened at the Capitol. We all saw things with our own eyes. There is footage. There is hours of footage, and 450 people have been arrested, and they weren't arrested on the basis of no evidence. They were all arrested because they were made photographically. At, at, at the very minimum in, 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 in the act of criminal trespass, and, and that's the minimum. Jonah's written about this popular front mentality, which explains a lot of this, why people feel like they can't sacrifice even the people with whom they have very few agreements and whose experiences they don't share and otherwise don't identify with in any other way save for the fact that the people they don't like want their scalp. Therefore, you have to defend them. Look, it's enough. It's enough to give you to give you a giant uh, pain in the back. And if you want to avoid pains in the back, not only in general but in specific, in terms of how you work, I'm going to tell you again about the X chair. You've heard me talk about it. You know that new uh, luxury supercar of office chairs uh, with its uh, dynamic. Uh, patented dynamic l variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to your lower back. And thanks to their new XHMT technology, you can also get heat and massage therapy while sitting at your desk. 
It goes right to your core, increases blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, all perks that make working from home or the office a joy. It even has four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy when I'm sore. So look, instead of worrying about going to sit down in that old uncomfortable office chair, you can look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. X chair is on sale for $100 off right now. Go to xchaircommentary.com. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. So we got to go, but I did want to note the passing of Walter Fritz Mondale, a senator from Minnesota, vice president of the United States, candidate for president in 1984, um, uh, uh, you know, man uh, who lost 49 states to Ronald Reagan, um, uh, an uncommonly gentlemanly political figure. Uh, and um, the story I just want to tell is that in in the late 70s, he hired our, our old friend, the late uh, Charles Krauthammer, for his first job in, uh, in Washington uh, as a speechwriter. And um, Charles, who did not suffer fools uh, gladly and uh, was a, could be a very, very harsh uh, judge of character, once told me that without question, Fritz Mondale was the kindest and nicest man that he had ever met, which is a pretty startling thing to say about a politician as ambitious and as successful as Fritz Mondale was. And we even saw that at the moment that he said he knew that he had lost the election in 1984 when Ronald Reagan let loose that one-liner after his uh, disastrous first debate appearance and was asked whether or not he was losing it. And and Reagan said, "I uh, I will not capitalize on the uh, relative youth and inexperience of, of my opponent. And Mondale broke into laughter, said he knew at that moment that he had lost the election, but it was the smile on Mondale's face, the fact that he was able to recognize uh, the cleverness and wit with which Reagan and his team had figured out how to parry and get over this uh, terrible blunder that he had made that marked him uh, as the kind of uh, gentlemanly figure in American politics that there uh, almost uh, no longer exists. So we mark his uh, note, his note, his passing with uh, w- with regret. Um, uh, I am a I am a, a half Minnesotan uh, by by birth. My mother uh, was from Saint Paul, Minnesota. My grandparents loved Fritz Mondale, uh, who was a friend to the Jewish community, and uh, and was somebody that. Um, Somebody that always had a nice a smile and a nice handshake for them, and uh, that that one of those retail politicians who knew how to keep support for people for decades just by going, "Hey, how you doing?" like that. So um, uh, we will, we shall not see see his like again. We will be back tomorrow, though not in the office together, which will make it easier for us to uh, rejoin with, with with Christine. I hope you've sort of enjoyed the sound and feeling of this time that we've had together. Um, and so for, for Abe and Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning. <laughs>